Soul Recovery is not just this podcast. It is a community. And each month on the first Monday, we get together on Zoom to support each other. I give a topic, then we break into small groups. It's a powerful way to be seen and witnessed and heard and supported through your own soul recovery journey. This is free to attend and open to everyone. Go to the website to register. The next one is May 6th from 6 to 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Also, in June on the 8th and 9th is an in-person soul recovery retreat in Lafayette, Colorado. This is going to be a weekend of incredible transformation, learning how to use soul recovery in your life and to leave that weekend transformed. Visit the website for more about what to expect and how to register. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Recover Your Soul. My name is Rachel Harrison. And this is a podcast offering inspiration, strength, and hope through the tools of recovery, spirituality, and positive psychology. I started recoveryoursoul.net after having profound positive changes in my life from my recovery of alcoholism and control addiction. I was guided to share these tools with others through this podcast, as well as offering personal coaching and spiritual counseling. Personal recovery does not need an addiction to use the tools and principles to better our lives and transform, just the desire to make positive changes and grow. I'm an ordained minister, and I continue to study and deepen my relationship with the spiritual principles that have brought me a life of peace, happiness, connection, and abundance. I know that together, we can do the work to recover our souls. again Whispering it is my friend So easy to be in despair Hard to believe there is repair to the rooms of AA or Al-Anon or any of the 12-step recovery rooms, they have something called speaker meeting. And the speaker meetings are where people who have done the work talk about themselves and tell their story. Where did they come from? How have they done the work to get to where they are and what is their life like now? And those speaker meetings to me have been a lifeline to allow me when I was in such dark times to believe for just a minute that there was light on the other side. And each speaker meeting I've ever been to has given me some tool, some awareness, some connection of realizing that I'm not alone in my soul recovery. And for me, it's alcoholism and Al-Anon and control addiction issues. But even if you don't have a behavior that you have a quote unquote addiction to, if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you have a desire to have a better life that is without the level of stress and anxiety that comes from thinking that you are controlling the world around you. 
And it is painful to be in a place where the world is not showing up for you in the way that you want it to be and your heart is breaking. So if you have gone to the 12 step rooms, which if you do have an active addiction and you're working on it, I highly recommend that you find a group. They are all over the world. They are both in person and now on zoom. And it is invaluable to be in the rooms of people who are dealing with some of the same issues that you have. And I am grateful that you choose me to be a voice in your ear as you do the work of soul recovery. But I'm going to take a minute to have my own speaker meeting and talk a little bit about my recovery and my story from alcoholism and control addiction. So I don't have the gene of alcoholism that maybe some people have, where as soon as you start drinking, you can't stop. That was not how I started drinking. When I was a little girl, my parents didn't drink. But I had a childhood where my dad was a musician, and he wasn't around very much. And um, he just had this whole kind of other life, right? And then my parents divorced when I was eight. And my mom was this incredibly spiritual, whole person but she had her own whole life. And I was an only child. So I was really left to my own devices to take care of myself, to play with myself, to make up my own pretend friends. I didn't have a lot of interaction with other kids when I was little, aside from school. And I've shared in the past that it was really not great that having this kind of hippie uh, Buddhist upbringing did have this aspect of being loved unconditionally for just who I was, but it also didn't equip me with the tools of the cruelty of other kids. And so I think really early on, I was uncomfortable being myself in front of other people. And so I learned how to chameleon myself at an early age to meet the needs of other people. And I think that if I'm really honest, I used being a pretty girl in ways to manipulate situations and getting the attention of boys very early on. And there's that piece of me that has really learned to grow up and how to realized that that was the only skill set that I thought that I had because I wasn't book smart. And I really struggled with friendships and being told that I wasn't enough. But somehow with the boys, I could have some level of control. And that ended up not being healthy either. So the first time I ever drank that I remember was when I was 13 or 14 years old. And it was actually at my dad's wedding of his second wife. And because there wasn't alcohol growing up, there was there was pot actually growing up. So I have a memory of when my dad has divorced 
my mom and lived on his own with um in house with a bunch of other guys that they would have parties and I would roll joints as and go around and hand them out at parties. And I remember smoking when I was younger, but I didn't really like it. And so it wasn't that I started smoking pot at an early age, but that was what was available to me. So flash forward again to my dad's second wedding and there was beer there and um, I got really drunk and really sick at that party, uh, my dad's second wedding party. And part of the reason for that was I was not comfortable with that relationship that right away when that was all happening, that was really uncomfortable for me. So there was this immediate feeling, even though I got really drunk and really sick, that I did feel that part of myself that this substance (laughs) relieved that discomfort. That substance relieved that part of me that felt uncomfortable. And that is what in the future led me to drink, even though my body did not like it from the very beginning. So I went through middle school and high school and didn't drink then and actually had the kind of the opposite situation, which was because I didn't drink in high school and middle school, again, I was kind of rejected by the the mainstream kids who went off and partied um, and it just didn't uh, didn't appeal to me. It didn't work for me. And, um, and I felt out of place because of that. And luckily I had a couple really good girlfriends that I could spend time with that weren't really into it either. And we, you know, we had our our own life. So my senior year of high school, my mom went with my soon to be stepdad and we moved to Germany to do a sabbatical. My stepfather and my mom were both scientists. My mom got her PhD and he was a, he was a physicist. So we moved to Germany for my senior year of high school where you can drink at that age. And that was my first real time of drinking. And again, it relieved the discomfort that I had in trying to figure out how I fit in with people that I still did not feel comfortable in my own skin. I still did not feel comfortable in social situations. I still really feel felt like I needed to fit in and mold with everybody else and how they were and be who they thought that I should be for me to be accepted. And that was from this deep kind of loneliness and rejection that I had as a kid. So in Germany, there was beer and there were bars that you could go to at, um, at my age. And that's actually how I met, uh, Aaron, who is in one of my previous podcasts that was my boyfriend in Germany. He was a military GI in the army and I was a senior in high school and met him at this bar called the 50, 50, which was 50% Americans and 50% Germans. And I, really loved dancing. And I really loved the initial feeling that I got from drinking. But I got sick almost every single time that I drank, I threw up all the time. And you would think that if you had thrown up the amount that I did, that you would think this is not good for me. 
But that is not at all what I thought. What I thought is I need to learn how to do this better. Clearly, I'm not doing it right. I need to practice more. So by the time I left Germany and had gone got to college, of course, there's drinking in college. And I was getting better and better at it. But all the way through all of my drinking, I was I would get sick um, almost up until the end. Uh, my last couple of years, I didn't get sick as much, but clearly it was a poison in my body. But what I remember so distinctly was that drinking for me did two things. One was that it relieved the discomfort that I had in my own skin and being able to connect with people around me. And two, that it gave me a way to connect and feel part of, of all these other people. And by the time I got to college, I also started smoking marijuana. And marijuana was great because we could totally just chill my anxiety way down and the alcohol would amp things way up. So at this point, I don't know it yet, but I'm an alcoholic because I am drinking. I drink almost every day and I drink by myself. I drink with people. It was an essential element of any of the situations that that happened in my life. And even though I felt like it was a poison, <laughs> um, even back then, it was part of how everything had to be. You know, you just, you just didn't not drink. And my boyfriend in college, um, drank just as much as I did and even more. And I am happy to say is a recovered, um, AA alcoholic at this point, recovered alcoholic. And I felt comfortable in that world. The other piece that I realize now is that there was something about the energy that came from drinking, the energy that came from the fun, that being such a sort of emotionally, um, I'm going to use the word flat, but, you know, I kind of, there's this piece of me that grew up without a lot of intensity. And, and if you've listened to the podcast with my mom about how nice Oklahoma girl became a Buddhist, you get an, a flavor of what my upbringing was like. And it was pretty mellow, right? So there was something really appealing about the energy that came from when you started to drink that things just ramped up and were really fun, you know? And when I met my husband, my now husband, Rich, 29 years ago, this, uh, oh, this month, right now, this minute, is our 29th anniversary of when we met. It was at the graduation party of my then best friend. So here we are 29 years later, literally probably this weekend. And he was with one of my really good friends had come as a date with one of my really good friends. And we all went to a party that night. And he was just so fun, and so nice, and so attentive to his girlfriend. And that I decided that I was going to wait for someone like that, that I was, I didn't want to deal with some of the, 
guys that I had been dating that were not treating me well, that I wanted to wait for someone who was cute and nice as this guy Richard was. Well, fast forward, they didn't end up working out and he and I ran into each other again in July of of 29 years ago and started dating and you know, here we are never looking back. But part of what appealed to me was that energy that he had and that he liked to drink just as much as I did. And for a long time, not for a long time, for a while, it was fine. You know, I mean, it was, we were young. I was 22 years old when I met my husband. And so there is a piece where it doesn't get unhealthy for a, for a while. It just was part of my life and it wasn't probably the healthiest thing, but it wasn't unmanageable yet. So I've told the story about how when I was pregnant with our oldest son, we went to counseling. And one of the reasons why we went to counseling, I'm just going to be totally honest and share bare my soul here, is because of that aspect of me that had thought that the way to get attention was through boys and sex. And so by the time at 22, I was with my husband, Rich, I had some stuff, I had some baggage and some damage that had come from being with so many people and not being in my heart in it, that I had not known how to be intimate with somebody in a deep heart way. It was about attention. It was about trying to fit in. It was about trying to be accepted. It had a lot of rejection. And so one of the reasons why we went to this counselor was to just kind of head some of that stuff off, you know, in this very healthy way of like, there's nothing really big going on here, but I kind of want to take a look at what is going on. And she's the one that said, I'll tell you one of your issues is you guys are alcoholics. And we both were like, huh, uh, no, and um, no, thank you. And we didn't go back to counseling. And what I can see now, so, so, so clearly, because I can see it in other people in my life now, it wasn't that we were unmanageably drinking yet. The drinking was not what was keeping our lives from being happy. We had the patterns of addiction where the attunement of where the problem was, was pointing outward. That even in those early sessions, we were sitting there saying, if the other person would be like I want them to be, then we would be happy. And if I look at that now, I (laughs) could have saved so many years of pointing outward and thinking that if the world attuned to me, if my friends attuned to me, if my husband attuned to me, if my job attuned to me, if they would just do it a little way, I like to call the right way, meaning my way, everything would be okay. That's what she was saying. She wasn't saying your drinking was out of control because it wasn't out of control yet. We were still well within the parameters of a life where it's normal to hang out with friends. It's normal to have drinks. I didn't drink a drop during my pregnancy. I didn't drink while I was nursing. I could, I could do those things. But as soon as those 
those were over, it was back to this is how you have fun. This is how you relax. So over the years, having small kids is stressful. Rich did a project where he built a house for my mom up in Red Feather Lakes, Colorado, which is about two hours away from where we live. And so for two years, mostly he was living up in the mountains, building this house and would come down for the weekends. Well, I had two kids by then. How do you think I relaxed? I relaxed by drinking. That's how I, I would reward myself for my good behavior as a mom. That's how I connected with my girlfriends that were a big part of my life. That's how I connected with my husband, who our main way of connecting was through alcohol and through that feeling that you get when you drink. And it worked for a while until it started being the way that I coped. So that reward became a coping mechanism and the drinking became more. And then it started to be the bickering. My husband and I could bicker, and I've said it before, we would be at a dinner out at a restaurant or at someone's house, and it would start well, and it would not end well. We'd be bickering and fighting, and then the kids would be fighting, and then it would just be uncomfortable and awful. And I remember how sad that felt to me, that I felt like there was no answer. But I was still in a place of feeling like if everything else changed, if the people around me changed, by this point, Rich and I are going to counseling, and I would spend the whole session pointing at all the things that he does that drive me crazy that he was, (laughs) whatever it was, like, I can't even remember now, because our lives are so much better. But that I wanted, I just wanted him and my life to be different. And so how do you reconcile that level of, of sadness interiorly? You drink. Moscow mules, margaritas, wine, You just find a way to not feel the feelings. But the feelings are still in there. They're like percolating in there and growing and and brewing into levels of discontent. So the first time that we got sober was, I think, around 10 or 12 years ago. And, And before that major time, there were a lot of trying to manage the drinking. There was a lot, a lot. It was clear that that this was not working anymore, that it wasn't just a normal life, that, that there was a lot of unmanageability, a lot of arguing, a lot of sadness, a lot of non-connection um, with my friends, with the kids were hard for me so often. Um, I just didn't know how to handle these two boys having come from a Buddhist single mother household. Um, I was just, I was out of control in terms of how I felt like my life was. 
And so we had, I would, I would, and he would, you know, sometimes we would do it together. Sometimes we wouldn't have this whole thing of, um, you know, we're going to only drink on the weekends or, uh, not drink for a month or, you know, whatever it was. So about 10 years ago, we had an epiphany. It was right after my husband's mother had died. And it was clear to us both that if we didn't get a handle on this, that it was all going to fall apart. And we went to AA together. And those three years of AA and recovery were the beginning of real deep awareness for me. And luckily, I had been going to a unity church at that point for 10 years, since I've been going for 20 years in total now. And I feel this intense gratitude that the truth is that if I hadn't been going to that spiritual community, I could have gone down a much, much darker road. And I believe with all my heart that that spiritual community kept my head above water just enough that I didn't really fall off the face of the earth with my alcoholism. So Rich's mother has just died. We have this kind of major life uh, aha moment. We walk into the rooms of AA for the first time. It was a powerful experience. And yet, truthfully, I felt still at that time, like really rich was the alcoholic and I wasn't like, I, I knew I had a drinking problem. I was a heavy drinker, but I couldn't really grasp the peace that I myself had a problem. So do you see that I'm still pointing the finger that if he would do something different, it would be better. So what I realize now looking back is a major reason why I was doing the recovery work was because I was trying to manipulate him to do it. I wanted him to do the recovery. And so a year in, our lives are much, much better. But now we have young boys in teenage years, and um, it's getting complicated, right? And he has stopped doing recovery work. And I think I really stopped doing my internal work because I was so obsessed with wanting him to change and be different, right? So again, I'm putting all the energy on somebody else's world changing, because I believe so strongly that if they change, that I will change, that I'll be okay. I won't change. I don't have to change. I don't think I have to change. I'm pretty sure they have to change. So in the midst of this, um, the boys are in middle school and high school and, um, and the wheels are starting to come off the bus and they're coming off the bus because if you are not drinking, but you are not actively working on a spiritual program, that's what they call a dry drunk, right? Because the truth is a substance is a solution to the discomfort that you feel. And if you don't have that substance, even though it often is unhealthy and not great, and you're not offered the other solution, 
which is to have a spiritual life and a new way of living, that is so uncomfortable. It is a really, really yucky and um, agitated place to be. So that's where we were. So Rich is in that agitated place of not drinking or doing recovery. And I have given him an ultimatum that if he drinks, I will leave. And I'm actually not really doing my program either. I've sort of stopped going to meetings. I'm back in my judgment. I feel like he is the one that is the problem. And and so no actual work is happening. We're both dry. And we have started really, really, really fighting over our oldest son and just really dark issues of how we saw how to try to be helpful to him from very different perspectives. And when I look back now, I think the hardest part is that it had absolutely nothing to do with our kid. It had everything to do with our own internal stuff and how we were obsessed with our own way of doing it. And that it all ended up playing out and projecting onto this poor child who really was stuck in the middle. And, and I, I question sometimes, like if we had been more healthy and able to see each other better, how that would have all played out. And I do feel like so much of what happened was him in response to the agitation that Rich and I had. And so I left. So there was this one day It was uh, the end of kind of a lot of things that had happened. Our son's birthday had just happened. We were in a band together and we just finished having a bunch of shows. You know, there was just like all these commitments that we had connected and we're done. And we came home from church one Sunday and we're having the same argument out in the open space that we had all the time. And I said, I'm done. I need, I, I need a break. I can't do this anymore. And I packed up my stuff and I left. And I left with my oldest son and left my youngest son. Ooh, I had to stop the tape there for a second and sort of catch my breath. So I took my oldest son and I moved to my mother's house who lives here in Louisville. And my youngest son didn't want to leave his dad. He felt like he needed to stay with his dad. So he stayed back at our house um, with his dad. And at this time, I don't think either one of us are drinking. Well, partially because Rich at that point had not been drinking because I had told him that I would leave, but then I left, right? So he started drinking again. And I think I almost pretty quickly started drinking again, too, because I was sure that he was the alcoholic and I actually wasn't the alcoholic and I was pretty sure he was the problem and I didn't need any work. So we went to counseling again um, because I wasn't saying at that time that I wanted a divorce. I just couldn't handle the fighting. I couldn't handle the uncomfortable life that we had. And we went to a different kind of counselor than we'd ever been to before. We went to a counselor who was um, a coach instead of a licensed psychotherapist who used to sit and just listen to each of us complain about each other and then say, well, we're up for today and collect their, 
their fee and we would leave without any actual work going on because we weren't willing to do our internal work. So we went to this different kind of counselor who was an ass kicker and really wouldn't allow for a bunch of storytelling and victimhood and called us each out for our shit and um, really demanded that we take a look at ourselves in a way that we hadn't ever done that before. And so we had started that journey where had gone to this counselor for about two months. And in one of our phone conversations, Rich said, well, if you know which direction you're going to go, and you already have made up your mind, then don't beat around the bush. What what have you decided? And he gave me a door and I walked through it. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And at this point, I'm drinking again. And so is he, you know, and this is my story. So this is not his story. So there is some level in our relationship that has this back and forth of it together. But I went back to drinking again. I went back to using that solution to calm my nerves, to take care of the discomfort that I felt about myself and about my life, to have a social life, to go out and do fun things with people because I didn't have the ability to do it without it anymore. Even during those those years of sobriety, I hadn't really worked on the tools of how to have a life that was without it. I had just gone without it. My first time around, I think I definitely was still in the space of feeling like there was a victim in me that I could never drink again. Whereas today I would say I have the freedom of being alcohol free. So we had this period of time where we actually told the kids, we went to a counselor and we told the kids that we were getting divorced. And I was still in a place of really feeling like I was without any uh, responsibility in everything that was happening in my life, that it was happening to me, that I was sort of a victim in the circumstances, and that I felt that I knew better, that I was right, that it was not my doing. Everybody else's pieces were the problem and that I wasn't a part of it. So we went to dinner one night and Rich said, it just doesn't seem fair that you're making a unilateral decision that is going to affect three other people so intensely who want it to be different. And somehow in the way that he said that made me realize that I couldn't, I couldn't take the responsibility of having made that decision and that I had to give him another chance to prove the things that he was saying that he could change and do different in his life and who he was to be better for me and that it would either work or it wouldn't work, but that I couldn't personally feel like I was responsible for breaking up our family. And he and I started dating again and working and 
going to the counselor. And guess what? We reconnected over drinking. What a concept. We had done that in the beginning of our relationship and we did it again. And for a while it worked. And then I moved back into the house and wow, those problems hadn't gone away because there hadn't been any internal work done. We still were looking at each other, wanting each other to be different and not doing internal work. I was still sure that I was not any of the responsibility of what was going on. And we were actively drinking more and more and more and more again. I was actively drinking more and more and more again. I got to the place I never drank at work. I worked in an office and my office life had gotten completely out of control. Those years when I was sober, I was, I was helpful in that office. I helped grow that business. I had, I was productive. I was a light in it. And when I started drinking again, I got resentful. I got controlling. I got bitchy. (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't me. I was this other aspect of me that takes control. When I say control addiction, I didn't have the kind of control addiction where I demanded that other people kind of do what I say, but I was sure in self-righteousness that I knew better, that I knew better, whatever it was emotionally, that if, that there was something else that could be happened that was emotionally better, I, it was, it's, it's subtle, but I have to take responsibility for the part that I thought that I knew a better way. And as that business working relationship was completely falling apart and was so painful, there were two years in that work environment that were just brutal for me, absolutely gut-wrenching. My unhappiness wasn't so much at home, even though Rich and I were still bickering, bickering, bickering. I had learned how to kind of have a separate life from him and not be connected. And then we kind of would connect over drinking and then we would fight (laughs) as we got into the drinking. But my work environment was so unmanageable and so brutally, brutally painful. And so I drank even more to be able to emotionally handle that. And I would get in my car after a day of work and I had a flask in the car and I would give myself a shot to just be able to get home to where the first thing that I did was pour myself a big glass of wine and take the dog out for a walk. And that felt like the first time that I could breathe all day because the work was so, so painful. That's about me. You know, I, I can see so clearly now that, um, I really wanted everybody else to come around to make it easier and better for me. And that I wasn't in the space of realizing how much judgment I had, how much resentment I had. So it was actually Rich who 
talked about sobriety again. And at this point, I have gotten so depressed and so anxiety ridden that I've pretty much given up on the idea of ever being happy. I really, I used to say that, um, that I was an alcoholic who had made friends with my alcoholism and it was just going to take me down. And my memory had really depleted. There's, you know, stories of my kids kind of laughing at me because I would not remember that I had told them whatever I had told them, or I would repeat myself in the same night. My mental capacity was depleting and I was overweight, not just, not just overweight in the sense of like being overweight, but bloated, you know, like my body was not healthy. And Rich was the one who was like, we've got to, we've got to do something different. Well, that's that codependent piece, right? I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I was still in this darkness of feeling like everything else in the world was at fault. And I was some victim in how bad it had gotten. And, um, I knew better. I'd been there before. If you've heard the episode that had the song calling for me, I get choked up thinking about it. I'd had the clarity of sobriety before, and I knew how good it was. I remember how clear my mind was that even even though I still had just barely, barely dug into it, that there was something incredible about how the healing was was taking place and and I knew that it was there and I would run into people that I had been in the rooms of AA with and they'd say how you doing and I'd be like well you know I'm drinking and they'd say well we're here anytime you want to come back we don't we don't beat our wounded. You're welcome back anytime. And I was terrified. I was so scared to do recovery again because I knew what did it why was I scared? I knew that it was going to take work, but I think it was my addict knowing this the frightening part actually is knowing that it was my addict who was terrified that it would get destroyed. That my whole real self was in there like a prisoner, wanting desperately to come out. And my addict had gotten so strong that it was controlling everything. It was driving my bus. And I now can see so clearly that the fear was not actually me. The fear was that part of myself that wanted to stay broken, that it's just easier to just not try. So I went to Thailand with my mom, uh, be three years ago in January. And that was my, my detox. Because at that, leading up to that, I was probably drinking 
maybe two bottles, three bottles of wine a day on a, on any given day, you know, not drinking again at work, but, you know, drinking all weekend, drinking every evening, just, just toxic, just filled with toxins, toxicity. <laughs> I remember, and I, I actually remember I told you I had been sick. I used to get sick. When I came back from the first recovery, somehow I taught myself to not get sick anymore, or my levels came up. I don't know what happened, but I, I quit. I quit actually throwing up, but it didn't stop making me having hangovers or being completely fuzzy foggy. So anyway, I go to Thailand with my mom. We go for three weeks. And when I first went, um, I brought a suitcase of shooters, you know, because I didn't know if we were going to be able to get drinks there or whatever. And, and it's so fascinating to be really honest with myself and realize how far down the road that I had gotten, that I had to bring alcohol with me on a trip. And um, so we get there. And through those three weeks, I know that I'm slowly weaning myself, because when I get home, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be sober, I'm gonna go back into the rooms of AA. And my mom's joke is that she had never drank so much, you know, really, as much as we did on that trip. And for me, it was really, really weaning down to, to not drinking with my last drinks being on the airplane uh, coming home from this Thailand trip and it was free wine and beer. And, um, I kept calling the stewardess to get more drinks on the way home because I knew it was my last drinking and she quit showing up when I would ring the bell. Uh, and I wasn't obnoxious, but she's like, I have never served as much alcohol as I have on this flight. And she was talking to me, I'm pretty sure. So I arrive in Colorado, and it's my first day. So it was the 8th or the 10th of February. I actually can't remember what my date is. I'd have to look it up, but it's 8th or 10th of February. And Rich picks us up from the airport, and we have this huge fight on the way home from the airport. And I remember thinking, ah, I don't know if I can do without alcohol and deal with this. It's so miserable, so unhappy, There's so much emptiness, there's so much darkness. But I did it. I went to my first AA meeting and I was raw for a long time. And my relationship with Rich didn't immediately change. My relationship with, at my work, my, my sponsor, I got a sponsor, what started going to the speaker meetings, went to meeting every day. My sponsor said, don't change your job right away. And so I had to be in this environment, this work environment that was really unhealthy. But I had this year of sobriety in that time to start to clean up my side of the street. And this time in recovery was the first time that I really grasped that soul recovery, that recovery is an internal job. And that it's not about everyone else in the world changing, it's about you changing, that I had to change, that I had to change how I saw things, 
I had to change how I related to things. I had to change what my story was. I had to let go of the victim in me. I had to take responsibility for my actions, for me. And something this time was different. Some switch happened where, thank God, the switch happened where I really realized I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I took the 12 steps and the teachings of AA in a way that I had never heard them before. I took them seriously and I took them for myself. And I am, I am beyond grateful that my husband is, is on this spiritual recovery journey with me. And that on some level, we still have this, you know, deep connection of wanting to do things together. But this time is my time. This time is for me. And when I did those steps, I did them with intensity that was real. Where I wasn't thinking, I'm doing this because I want everybody else to change. I did this because I wanted to change. And every day I did something that was along with the lines of recovery. And a year after my sobriety, it was time and spirit opened the door and I left the job that was so really unhealthy for me. And in the, that year, I had been able to really also witness and take responsibility for the actions that were mine and to see clearly that I had a part in it, that it was not a single-sided street. It was a two-way street and I had some things to do with it. I probably had a lot to do with it. And God put me in a job that was a temp job and that temp job was easy. And in that temp job, I could listen to content. And so for like six hours a day, I listened to spiritual content. I listened to podcasts. I listened to speaker meetings. I just ate, I listened to books. I just ate up as much positive psychology and recovery that I could get. And And I had this ability in that job to see clear communication and to witness myself thinking that I still thought I knew better, that you could go into a corporate position and think that you've got things to teach them. And maybe that's true, but the truth is that wasn't my deal. I had humility. Oh boy, did I have humility in that situation. I, I so hoped that they would just see how wonderful I was, that they would want to keep me and in, in not in a temp position, but in a real position. And when I look now, I think, wow, that was so full of ego, because that was not the place for me. Spirit had put me there to heal me, to give me a holding space while the next right thing was happening, that was a healthy place for me to be able to really do my meetings, to really put 100% of myself into my soul recovery. I was doing Al-Anon, I was doing AA, and something inside of me was changing. It was an entirely new way of thinking that didn't ask what could they do different. It asked, what can I do different? 
How can I be different? And then the job opened up at my spiritual center, like out of the blue. The woman who had been the director of community care at my spiritual center decided to retire. And she said, you'd be really good at this job. And my ego was like, "Mm, I don't really want to work on Sundays. And I don't know. That's so funny to me because it is the perfect job for me. And I had been wanting to be a minister and wanting to do spiritual work. And so you got to work Sundays if you're going to be a minister. So what was that in me? That was my, that was my addictive self that didn't want full healthiness that said that. But of course, I was encouraged by um, a few really important people to apply for the job. I applied for the job. I interviewed for the job, got the job. What a gift. Spirit has been there for me when I was ready to be there. When I started listening, when I was open to it, when I was willing to be led and to do the intuition and the guidance, only amazing things happened. And to be able to work this job that is part-time, that allows me to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and of course Sundays, Sunday mornings, has given me the ability to create Recover Your Soul. I am passionate about this. I have the space for it. I don't have to be at work till like nine o'clock in the morning. I can wake up, I can do my, my spiritual work every single morning. And when I look at it from that perspective and I say, I stopped asking everything to attune to me and said, how can I be of service? How can I look at myself? What is my part in it? How can I change my perspective? How can I hand it over to spirit and quit thinking that I have to take on everything? And over these last three years, February being my third year, I can't even believe the gifts that have come in my relationships. If you've listened to the podcast with me and Rich, it is like an entirely new person. I'm a new person. He's a new person. We have this ability to connect and communicate that isn't about barking at the other person or trying to force our opinions on the other person. We just listen. And in that listening, there's safety. And the safety that we have with each other is allowing us to really share from our hearts in a way that we never could do before because we just were defensive and thought that the other person was going to be attacking of what we thought or what we believed or telling us how to do it different. And I, I can't even believe that I drink so much. And I can be in situations where there's alcohol and there's people drinking. My husband's in a band and I go to the bars and go hear him play. And I don't, I don't miss it. I don't miss it at all. I will be around people in uh, social situations. And, and yeah, there's not that spike in the emotion that comes from, from alcohol or from, from drugs where like, you're all of a sudden you're off to the races and you have those, those intense feelings, but I'm okay with that. I have learned tools 
and their internal tools to be able to feel just as comfortable, just as happy, just as alive, just as connected, even more so than I ever did when I drank. But more than that, my head is clear. My memory is back. I have a desire to learn and to grow. I wake up every morning and I am so excited and ready for another day. I'm excited for my life. I used to I used to pray that I would be in a car accident. That if I could just stop the pain. But I never want anything to happen to me because I would never do that to my children. But the life that I had was really painful. So here I am, immersed in spirituality. I just went through a ministerial program. I love it. I cannot get enough of the spiritual stuff, but I wasn't ready for it until I was ready for it. And sometimes the first step is just the first step. Whatever the behavior is, whatever the addiction is, to really recognize and be honest with yourself that that is true, that that exists. I think the second time around to really do the first step, admitted I was an alcoholic and that my life was unmanageable. Not that other people were making it unmanageable, not that somebody else's issues were making it unmanageable. I personally was powerless and my life was unmanageable. And to really do the steps, to really do the spiritual work, not wanting the rest of the world to change. And I am so grateful that I've had each one of those experiences because I wouldn't be where I am today without each one of those things. And I'm blessed to not have regret because I've learned. But one of the things that I can say from my own experience is people aren't ready until they're ready. So I can look at somebody else and think, I'm that therapist all those years ago that can see so clearly at somebody that says that heartache that you have, that the world is not being kind to you. There is a solution and it comes from internally. It's going to come from you inside when you're ready to connect to your higher power and to let go of that story. And to do the internal investigation and curiosity and take responsibility. But no one can make you do it until you're ready. And that's why we can't control anybody else, anybody else's recovery, anybody else's spiritual journey. You are only ready when you're ready. And thank God that I was able to find it before it was too late. My marriage is saved. My relationship with my kids is saved. I'm in a job that I love. I've created this community that is so incredibly important to me. And the feedback that I get that I'm helping and affecting any single other person is incredible. And I can't wait to do more. I can't wait to wake up every day and the birds sing and man, where was I all those years? I was lost. So recently, somebody said, I don't know if I can quit drinking forever. You know, maybe I'll just quit for a little bit. 
but I don't think I can really give up wine. I remember feeling that way. And the beauty of any recovery work is you don't have to think for the rest of your life. You just got to think right now. Can you make the small changes today? Can you not drink today? Can you not eat sugar today? Can you not overspend today? Can you not watch porn today? Can you not look at your phone for the next hour? Whatever our things are that we use to numb ourselves out to fill up that void, it's just a 24-hour ask. And then those 24 hours, they lead to the next, and then all of a sudden it's years. I wouldn't trade a glass of wine for a million dollars. Not with the way that I feel now, not with the happiness that I have now, not with the life that I have now. Wouldn't trade it for a thing. It's not worth it. Such gratitude for that. So there's my story. You're ready when you're ready. And it's okay, you know, I mean... I think the key is, thank God I went to a spiritual community where I heard what I needed to hear, and I'm grateful for that first round of recovery, and I am sure that I will look back on today in the future and think, you still had so much to learn, you know, so much more. Our souls are evolving, and that's what our life is about. Our life is about soul involvement. That's why I love soul recovery. And that we don't have to compare ourselves to anybody else or anybody else's story. This is uniquely your own journey. Just like my journey was uniquely my own, and it continues. And I get hit with emotional stuff, and life isn't easy. It hasn't meant that my life is without issues. Oh, there's plenty of issues. I can just handle it better. I can see it clearly. I have more tools to be able to manage it without the real level of unhappiness and discomfort that I had before. And I'm going to keep working it. I'm going to keep working it. I'm going to keep working it. It's so worth it. And I'm just so grateful that you're on this journey with me and that we're doing this together and you're part of the soul recovery community. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe on the Facebook page to be a part of the private group. Let's connect. Let's do this together. What is your story? How can we support each other? How can I support you? If you want personal one-on-one time with me, I'm available. Book a session with me. We're in this to figure ourselves and our souls out and to connect. And I am just so grateful that you're here listening and participating in soul recovery. Until next time, namaste. The dark night, it comes again Whispering, it is my friend Oh, you
listening. I hope this episode offered you tools, guidance, and inspiration on your journey to recover your soul. For more information, please visit the website recoveryoursoul.net. There you can find more about Rev. Rachel, book coaching or spiritual counseling sessions, read the blog, listen to her music, connect to social media, as well as subscribe to receive updates. We thank you for supporting the production of this podcast by donating on the homepage. We hope you'll follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become part of our transformation community. The Recover Your Soul podcast and its content is for educational purposes only and is not allied or representative of any organizations or religions. It's based on the opinions and experience of Reverend Rachel Harrison. Recover Your Soul claims no responsibility to any persons or entity for any liability, loss, damage, or cause alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of its use. Applications or interpretations of the information represented herein. Take what you need and leave the rest.